0: The Envelope is brought to you by HBO Originals Going to Mars, the Nikki Giovanni project for your consideration. Welcome to another episode of The Envelope. My name is Sean Finney, and I am joined by Ivan Villarreal and Mark Olson. Today, we're going to be speaking with one of the three directors from Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, Kent Powers, as well as the actor Jeffrey Wright from American Fiction. But first, y'all... Golden Globes.
1: Where I can't do we start? We're
2: still talking about the Golden Globes. I
1: thought we were supposed to stop talking about the Golden Globes, <laughs> and now we're back at it.
2: Well, thanks to the <laughs> reporting of some of our fine colleagues yes. here at the Los Angeles Times yes. that revealed the sort of you know financial dealings of the the group, and also the sort
1: shortcomings, of
2: their shortcomings <laughs> as far as the diversity of the makeup of the, of the group itself. You know, they really had some setbacks, but they're going to be on CBS. They've switched over from NBC this year. And so due to some, you know, sort of backstage corporate machinations of like their new ownership and how they're trying to run the place, they seem like they're kind of back and I don't want to say bigger than ever. We'll see like, I think it's going to be baby steps of coming back. But Sean, did you have thoughts on any of the nominations that came out? First, I'm just like, when are we going to get the host? It's gonna be interesting
0: to see. I mean, one of us could, if we had to. If we had to, I think one of us could do it. Um, I Why
1: think can't it be all three of us? Are you trying to know take what? something for You're that? right, you're right. It <laughs> could be the
2: three of us. The trio.
1: Okay. LA Times yes. is hosting.
2: Thank you. <laughs> well, I think the inside out aspect of when Jared Carmichael hosted the show yeah. set a pretty high bar for hosts trying to address the issues that the Globes have as an organization but still, like, host a fun right. award show. So, we'll be intriguing to see who they end up with. Yeah. Fun, who do you have? Any surprises, shocks from nominations?
1: Well, look, we have two new categories. I think one of them was TV stand up special, which, you know, okay. Um, but the other was the box <laughs> office category, which gave, you know, a chance for a film like Taylor Swift's era's concert special to be nominated. I don't know. It, it's a different kind of category.
2: Also, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, part Guardians one. Guardians of the Galaxy. There. Exactly. The movies, it's going to be interesting because I know the Academy has like floated the idea of a category similar to that, and it was sort of like quickly talked <laughs> down. And so it's, it's interesting to see what it's how that's going to play out. You know, it's almost like the Globes get to kind of, again, like, uh, uh, test case for for how it turns out.
0: And I mean, Barbie and obviously Oppenheimer are leading as we expected it to be. No real shock there. I think I'm I'm really just curious to see how the sustainability of it throughout the rest of the season, because I think the Golden Globes, for better or for worse, I feel like they um, kind of inspire voters to kind of where they can place people, where they should be. And so I think it'll be interesting to see that for sure.
1: The big shock to me was just to see like you have a film like The Color Purple, which we have our expectations for where they should fall, and for it not to be nominated in the musical or comedy category? Like, isn't this exactly the, the, the kind of film? Yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Air nominated in that category. May December's we talked about before nominated in that category. So it's <laughs> the the movies that are a little bit harder to place, or so that aren't fully like drama dramas, kind of backwards fall into that category. So then a just full-on actual musical like The Color of Purple, which seems like the most obvious, you know, movie to be celebrated in that category, somehow falls by the wayside. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm glad to see
0: Fantasia and Danielle getting their just due, I'm just, yeah, to your point, like where's everything else for it?
1: Well, America Ferrera too didn't get the nomination that I thought seemed so obvious as well, but and then there's pl- people like Adam Driver, I guess maybe I don't know. I know there there can't be everyone can't be in it, but it is just shocking to see some of these people that we do see in contention uh, for Oscar nominations just get shut out so early on.
0: I mean, I think the good thing is like there's still opportunities to see where it can go because these categories and the new ones. I feel like it's shifting, and Golden Globes is just coming back. I feel like. We're gonna take it for what it is as we continue to see how the rest of the the season unfolds. I feel like we can still see some surprises there for sure.
1: Well, I wanna talk about one of the nominees uh, for Golden Globes, which is Jeffrey Wright. He's in the film, American Fiction, and he plays Thelonious Ellison, who goes by Monk. And in the film, things aren't going well at work or at home. Um, He's in the position where, you know, his mother's health has taken a turn and he has to sort of take on this caretaker role, and at the same time, career-wise, his his books have been sort of have haven't done well, and his the one that he's currently pitching isn't getting bought anywhere. So he does this thing where he's like, I, I, as a joke, I'm just going to write the sort of book that I hate, which plays on the <laughs> trope like plays on every trope of of black people that he that he knows white people sort of eat up (laughs) and it turns out that this is the book that sells and it sells for way more money than any of his real books have sold for and you know he's in a position where he sort of needs this to work and it really makes for this you know wry, but also heartwarming sort of race satire that comes from um core jefferson We know from TV and has also been a journalist, but this is his first time directing a feature film, which he also wrote. Um, So this is a really fun conversation with Jeffrey. I'm really excited to get into it.
0: You saw Jeffrey's character, how conflicted he was with like. Why is the success of my other books and like his agent, you know, really kind of rallying him up? I, I, yeah, American fiction is hilarious. I had a chance to talk to Kent Powers, Mm -hmm. one of the three directors from Spider Man Across the Spider Verse. Spider Man, we all know the legacy that is, but I really appreciated understanding a bit more of the nuances, some of the decisions that were made as we went across Mm -hmm. the Spider Verse this time, watching Miles Morales grow up Mm -hmm. and the complexities with his family, the nuances. I'm really excited to see, and I feel like. Spider-Man always sweeps, right? I mean, it's just like if you're if you're signing up for a Spider-Man movie, you know it's gonna go far. Right. And I feel like Kemp speaking to the specifics around the three directors, was one of the things I had was I was like, how do you all make decisions?
1: Well, it's like us, like how yeah. do we all make this work? It's an interesting collaboration <laughs> to see how three minds work together. Well,
2: Kemp, another formerly a journalist before yeah. he became a yeah, screenwriter
0: for 17 and
1: years. Guys, when are we gonna write our screenplay?
2: That Well,
0: we're going to host the Golden Globes first, and then we're going to write the screen. Too many
1: things, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Coming up next, Sean will be talking with director Kemp Powers.
0: Welcome back to The envelope. My name is Sean Finney, and today I'm really excited about our guest. He's somebody I've got to know a little bit throughout the years, and somebody whose work I really, really admire. He is a playwright, a writer, director, producer, father, and co-director of this year's Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Welcome, Kemp Powers. Thanks for having me, man. Thanks for coming out. We're going to talk about Across the Spider-Verse because it's the time. We're going to get into all that. But I want to talk about, before we do that, your journey and how and who you are and how that propels and what you do. But first, can you tell us where we are?
3: You're in my office. Um, It's in my backyard. It's a little ADU I had built actually during COVID because we were finishing Seoul and One Night in Miami during the height of COVID. Um, and I was already kind of going stir crazy from being in my house, so I have an office in my house and I was just like, I gotta get out of the house, so even walking 20 paces to a new space was something that I needed, so so I constructed this and ever since, this is kind of like where I do uh, most of my work. You're from Brooklyn, fellow Brooklyn I hear. Yeah, yeah, so like, we're what here you for you, all things Brooklyn, huh? Crown ever... Heights. Oh, okay, Yep. Flatbush. Yeah. Flatbush in Kensington.
0: It's it's yeah, violent. yeah, yeah. And like, what, growing up in Brooklyn, how has that shaped and propelled you as you started to just kind of step into this space, writing, directing, producing?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because, you know, New York has changed, obviously, so much uh, for, I don't have to tell you this, uh, but growing up there, people often grow up in a place and they want to leave. And one thing I noticed about growing up in Brooklyn is we didn't even want to leave our block. Like, you really do feel like there's no place else in the world that really exists or even understands you. And I think a lot of that just came from the time at which I was growing up. You know, growing up during the 80s when hip hop was like this nascent kind of thing that for the most part at the time was only in New York. Mm -hmm. Now hip hop is global. But back then, the music we were listening to, the stuff we were wearing, the art that you saw, punk rock was really exploding. You know, the city was coming out of bankruptcy. So the, the the negative of that is that we were all pretty poor, but the positive of that is that there was a creative flourishing in a city that at the time was was pretty cheap. It had plenty of problems, you know. That was probably when New York's crime rate was the the highest it had ever been. But but I was a city kid, you know what I mean? So you 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 it's like hard knocks. You learn to navigate these things, um, and they become kind of like badges of of honor. So, you know, even going into the city, which is what we call Manhattan, that was something we did like once a year on a school trip.
0: It was like a journey. Yeah, Yeah, it it, it, literally was a journey. (laughs) It was
3: kind of like, all right, kids, we're going to the Staten Island Ferry to see the Statue of Liberty or we're going to the Museum of Natural History or going to the Empire State Building. I remember those things because they were like, that was the one trip a year. And, And I give my mom a lot of credit because she took me to my first Broadway play. Uh, At the time, I think the big, there were a few big plays. There was like the tap dance kid with Alfonso Ribeiro. There was Cats, which was like, everyone was going on and on about Cats. A chorus line. And I was like, oh, mom, I want to see a Broadway play so bad. I want to see Cats. And I remember when she was like, I got tickets to a Broadway play. I was like, Cats? She was like, no, it's called La Caja Faux um and it was the original production with harvey firestein and i was like what's it about she's like i don't know but it's a broadway play (laughs) just shut up and let's go and and it was kind of it was awesome because that being my first musical really just like opened my mind up to the amazing kinds of stories that could be told and and that's how i always describe myself like Sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm a filmmaker, um, I'm a writer, I'm a playwright, but at the end of the day, man, I'm just, I'm a storyteller.
0: You went from there, I was thinking about your, your imagination being expanded there, then you went to Newport News where I was born, Yeah, also interesting. Yeah. And then Howard, yeah. and like, talk to me about that book, because I feel like Howard is when you
3: really kind of started to shape your, your voice as a journalist. Yeah, yeah, I mean, because I was writing for The Hilltop. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, w- I was in New York, I, was, I think it was sophomore year, my mom moved down to Virginia. She moved us down to Virginia, and I ended up in Newport News, and I went to Warwick High School. Um, And and it was quite a transformation, you know, because, you know, I went to Edward R. Murrow High School in Brooklyn, um, which is a a really, you know, it's become even more popular, I think, since I've been there. But it was a super creative school. Like, Murrow was most famous for, like, selling its football team to Midwood, which was another school, and getting rid of all the sports programs. (laughs) Instead, they replaced it with a theater program
2: and a news
3: program. So like the, the Edward R. Murrow production of like Don Quixote or Cabaret, these were like professional level. It wasn't like Christopher Guest, yeah. you know what I mean? And yeah. like Waiting for Guffman, these were like serious productions. So, you know, we were kids who were given this incredible amount of responsibility. And then, you know, we moved down south. I was only down there for a couple of years in Newport News, but I was suddenly in a school that was, um, you know, 85 to 90% black school. Um, um, but I found myself in this weird position where a lot of the advanced placement courses I was taking, I was the only black kid. So I, I actually became a lot more cognizant of different things. I loved being in, I, I, in hindsight, I loved elements of Virginia because I don't think I'd be who I am today if I didn't get the contrast.
0: Mm, and, and the awareness. Of yes. The, the space I wouldn't have are. been
3: aware. I was in yeah. a bubble in New York Yeah, and going down South exposed me to a different way a yeah. different way things were yeah. and I actually needed them both yeah. you know like I love the south my mom used to send me down to North Carolina for uh, for summers for like a couple of weeks every summer but actually living in Virginia it opened my eyes and it was part of that part of living in Newport News is what made me want to go to Howard to be perfectly honest because all of a sudden the things that I was interested in in New York that weren't that big a deal You know it wasn't a big deal for you know a kid in a black kid in brooklyn to like sting's dream of the blue turtles yeah yeah down in virginia they were like damn fool why you like that yeah it was it was (laughs) weird because everyone was kind of like in their groups yeah uh and all of a sudden i started feeling like a little bit of a weirdo Mm -hmm. so when i was in new york i was like oh i want to go in ivy league school maybe i want to go to nyu try to get into columbia or go to hunter you know and after about a year in virginia i was like i want to go to a black college you know, I just I I want to I want to be around other black kids like me. Yeah, I didn't graduate from Howard. Yeah, I left before graduating. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people, I ran out of money, but um, but I went right into working as a as a journalist. It was it was a career that um I thought I was gonna retire from from doing. I I love I love journalism. I bloomed early in journalism and I pretty much burnt out. I really was burning myself out, and I was having one of those quarter life crises. You know, you're in your late 20s and you're just like, you're already feeling tired. i like, <laughs> what else am I going to do with my life? And that's what got me to start writing, writing again, creatively writing plays. And, you know, I wrote my first short plays and wrote my first full length play. And it was really, really re- well received. That was One Night in Miami. My first produced play was One Night in Miami here in Los Angeles. And what was that, 2013? Yeah, 2013. Yeah. And things picked up fast, you know. But through it all, I was still trying to hang on to be like, well, I'm a journalist, and this is what I do on the side. side.
0: Yeah. From there, we had one night in Miami. Yeah. soul. Yeah. Culminating all towards now, yeah. Spider Man across the Spider Verse, <laughs> and and when we talk about like your voice, I and I told you this before, like your voice connective to me. As a viewer, it's just like community, it's culture, it's connectivity, it's it's all of those aspects of it. And I'm curious, like, what you feel your voice and contribution, specifically your voice, is in Across the Spider-Verse.
3: Well, in every single film that I work on, I look for some, I look for very specific characters I can relate to that speak to themes that I believe are universal, that anyone in the world can understand. That's always been the case, because... And, and this was something that there was a and a once um, when one of my plays was running in, I think it was in Denver, and it was a play that featured all black characters. And someone in the Q&A said, look, how does it feel for you to have this audience that's not black watching and consuming this play? And I was like, it feels fine. You enjoyed the play, didn't you? He was like, yeah. I was like, well, you know, no one ever asked someone, do you need to be um, Italian to enjoy The Godfather? You know, like, it's actually the specificity of these characters um, is what kind of makes you lean in because it's interesting, but what really moves you is that the challenges these characters are dealing with are something that anyone and everyone can understand. You know, Spider-Verse, who, who does it... I think everyone in the world wants the same thing. They want, they want their kids to do well. They want their kids to do better than them. They want safety and security for their families. They, they want fathers want their sons to look up to them daughter we we all want these things universal it can be in not just in brooklyn yeah china in india in australia we all it's so so universal and the hyper specificity of young miles morales who's this half black half puerto rican kid that excites me because that's a world i know because i'm from that community yeah you know i know that community but our humanity is what connects us. So if I'd say there's like a thematic thing in in all the work that I do and the work that I'm drawn to is that I'm always looking for some greater truth. And, and I think it really helped for me to work on a film like Soul, which was so unusual for a Pixar film. You know, you have an, a protagonist who is, in his 40s you know (laughs) like a certain person who you know uh, a late blooming artist like a certain person (laughs) you know and in this idea of like what does success mean yeah what is the artist's journey you know your success what other people define as success might not feel like success for you what happens after you win so to speak you get up the next morning and then you have to do something else these are things that like really racked the minds of a lot of creatives, I think, not just in Hollywood and music, you always are kind of like, okay, what have you done for me lately? You look at a film like Spider-Verse, what I love about it is we have a crew of a thousand people and I think if you talk to all thousand of those people, they could point out and see themselves in this film because that's what we encourage. You know what I mean? Is this collaboration isn't just like, give us all your stuff. It's like, what's passion? What are you passionate about? What's important to you? It's not just delegating down; it's also receiving.
0: And when I think about the process of something like that, because with a film like this, people don't understand how long it takes to kind of put a film like this together. Years. To walk me through, like, because I feel like I feel like Justin was a former production designer. Joaquin is is an illustrator as well. Yeah. Like, so how did you all make like decisions as like co-directors, and like how did you carve out those lanes individually and then come back collectively?
3: Well, the the way I describe it is that initially, at least, we built this world, these characters in this story together. Okay, so what that means is that um, for the first year or so, there were a lot of daily meetings and all of us were in all the meetings and we voiced a lot of opinions about everything. And I don't just mean everything like, you know, Spider-Man 2099's costume. I mean everything like Jefferson's shirt, Rio's pants. These were discussions. Discussion after discussion after discussion every piece of the set the look every the designs of the world visual development the three of us as well as you know phil and chris we were just in it building it together so it was literally the definition of directing um as a team um but then you have to now execute this world that you built and then once you get to the execution stage, I think each of us had strengths based on what we, our previous experience and what we brought to it. And we would kind of, we would overlap, but we'd also focus on our lanes as much as humanly possible. Like Joaquim Dos Santos, one of our, one of my, my directors, uh, co-directors, you know, he's probably one of the best action choreographers in animation. You know, Joaquin worked on Voltron, Korra, Last Airbender, like when it comes to action, like Joaquin is the man, Justin K. Thompson was the production designer on the first film. So when you when you were conceptualizing things like this, this mood ring world for, for, for Gwen, Gwen yeah. you know, Justin is the guy who can really like get into the details of things like the color script, you yes. know, and you know, because of my background, I kind of naturally floated to like, I love working with actors get the cast to record all of the cast sitting in edit you know trying to cut this together with Mike Andrews and Phil and Chris and Chet and some of our other editors to cut these sequences together so that you have the cleanest possible you know storytelling you know we we i have a tremendous interest in the music you know metro so booming. yeah i mean yeah metro was just such an incredible addition and also like the needle drop stuff and 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 it's just we all kind of like went into our lanes and our specialty areas i think for me that meant a lot more time um in edit you know and and cutting the film together that meant a lot a lot more time working with the actors recording it also meant a lot more time kind of poking at the story at the script level with with Phil and Chris and Dave Callahan and kind of throwing out ideas to kind of try to massage that script um, you know, from the director's chair. Yeah. Do what I can to massage the script so that, you know, it's as clean as humanly possible. One of the things I like the most about our crew on this film, yeah. um, you know, Joaquin and Justin and Phil and Chris and Christina Steinberg, you know, our producer, all of our leads, you know, Amy Avi, everyone Everyone just wanted to make it better all the time. And it was never too late to make it better. A great example of that is um, one of the scenes in the film takes place in what's called Mumbatan. And this is a world that introduces us to Pav, by in yep. India. And that was a scene that we worked on for a long time and we felt like we had reasonably gotten it pretty good. You know, we were really happy with how it was playing. And suddenly we got an email from a bunch of the animators, a bunch of animators of Indian descent um, uh, who throughout the company, because yeah. they're the ones making this scene. Yeah. And long story short, the they email, had notes. They had notes. Yeah. And the email was like, you know, it doesn't feel authentic. It doesn't feel as cool. cool enough. We have a lot of, you know, it doesn't seem to reflect the, this type of character as we know it. Mm-hmm. And, there's two ways this could go. I mean, this was far long in production. Okay. Like it was being animated and you could be defensive about it and say, look, it's too late. It is what it is good enough. But it wasn't, it was not even like a second of like, we got to. We got to go back and crack this back open. Mm. This is not going to stand. First thing we did was we had a, because everyone was spread all over the place. We had a zoom meeting with all the Indian animators and we just, we're taking notes just getting all the stuff that they said you know hearing it all out like it was just a conversation a really nice conversation and then we quickly convened a writers' room of indian writers and indian american writers um and from all over remember, oh yeah, yeah people who weren't involved in in the production yeah comedians dramatic like we just convened a room and locked ourselves and we we invited in Karan sony um the actor who played Pav, mm-hmm. who was like shock wait you want me he Was like yeah we want you it's your character we want you in the room too Wow. and we just locked ourselves in the room and they talked all day wow. and we just made notes then uh phil and chris wrote a new version of the script that sucker went right back into production we rebroke it we laid it out again we reanimated it and it was completely different, and that went from one of the scenes that was giving us the most agita. It felt like, man, this is kind of a weak spot, until like almost everyone's favorite, one of their favorite scenes in the film. Yeah, you know, and that wouldn't have happened if we would just leaned on, like, look, it's too late. So, as chaotic as this process can be, it's also what allows us to kind of achieve these kind of magical things. They're not done by accident. It's because it's never done. We we you're gonna try to make it better until they pry the film away from you.
0: And I love the development too of of Miles because I feel like um, at first you see him kind of gain his power and in in, in 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 the first film mm-hmm. towards the end. And this one, you see him kind of from the beginning, like expand upon who he is. Like he is Spider Man, and then that is even questioned in the film.
3: Yeah, I mean, when the film starts off, one of the very important things was that. Miles is, it's been a little while. Yeah. Miles is not just bigger, he's competent, you know? Because when the first film ends, he's just getting his sea legs, you know? One of the last scenes is him like, I'm Spider-Man, then slips and falls off the wall and he gets hit in the face by a drone, okay? (laughs) So, like, we jump forward in time. It was important for people to believe from the very beginning that this was a character who could be the Spider-Man who protected his whole city on his own, you know? Just like every other Spider-Man, Spider-Woman, Spider-Pig had to be. Yeah. He had to be a city-protecting, Superhero, yeah, and we and and it was really key to a, establish that, because, especially knowing the journey we were going to have him go on, knowing that by the near the end of the film he was going to be chased by and have to fight off hundreds and hundreds of spider people. So we had to establish that Miles not only was Spider Man, but might be one of the best, most competent you know spider people there had ever been. And and of course you know the introduction of the Miles character in the comics, I think was a point of controversy, unfortunately. I think there were some people who pushed back against this idea of this character, and and, and it, it's kind of heartbreaking because Miles Morales isn't Peter Parker. He's his own thing. He's actually so different than, Peter Parker has his Aunt May, you know, who doesn't even know what he's doing. Miles has two parents and he's close to them. There are unique challenges to being uh, a Miles Morales. You
0: can see him conflicted.
3: Totally conflicted. Wanting to share with them. Just the idea of keeping a secret from his mother, let alone his mother and his father, that poses a really unique challenge for Miles. I think that's what makes the character so rich. And don't forget for a certain generation of kids, Miles Morales is their default Spider-Man. Exactly. You know, for me Peter Parker was a Spider-Man that of I course. grew up with and I love them both. Of course. But like there was this there there was this vocal thing. I mean, I'm not on social media, but I know that there's There was this kind of like vocal thing for a long time about like Miles isn't a legitimate Spider-Man. He's not the real Spider-Man. And look, we don't we don't want to do anything the lazy way. We're smart people. We're like, what's a clever way that we can also have the natural story also be kind of like a metaphor pushing back against the idea that this character shouldn't even exist in the first place. Yeah. And I, I feel like I hope that people received both the obvious and the kind of subversive elements of it in a positive way because we we had a blast, you know, telling it that way. When Miguel says to him, you know, you're not supposed to be Spider-Man. Some people hear it exactly the way he said it based on the story. The spider bit the wrong person. But I also know and we all knew that some people were going to hear it a different way. Which would validate their own thoughts
0: already that they had about him not being a real Spider-Man. Yes, people
3: who were fans of Miles Morales who felt like there were people in the world who would not accept this character as Spider-Man and, and both can feel it and both are right. You know what I mean? And I, and I love that about, about how he's seeing and hearing how some people receive it. Cause I do, I feel like miles is a Spider-Man for everyone, but depending on who you are in your own background, he's going to be important to you for different reasons. And,
0: and going to that, I wanna
3: talk about that scene
0: when he was when they were all chasing him down because I feel like how long did that scene take to actually
3: lock in? Oh my god. I mean we didn't some of the big that was first that was our biggest set piece. Yeah. And I remember I mean years. It took years. We we worked on that scene for for years and we kept on making changes until the 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 bitter end, I think. It's funny. Um, the one of the lines, uh, Miles, does, the the line Miles does, where Miles does, where he says, "You know, now nah, I'm gonna do my own thing." We tra- There's, I'm sure on my computer, I have 50 different lines that Shamika read. <laughs> we just couldn't. We worked. We tried it. We would put it in there. It was like, oh, that sounded good, but this doesn't work. He did everything from like, I'm Spider-Man or that, and, <laughs> and we, and we tried so many different things. And it's funny because that line on the page, uh, I remember having a conversation with Phil Lord about it. I was like, oh man, I don't know. Like the line on the page doesn't, doesn't seem to read, you yeah. know, but then Shamik d- did the line. And Phil was like, all right, well, is there anything? They're like, no, his read is great. Like, I actually buy it coming out of Shamik's mouth. Yeah, You know, him saying like, you know, you read, nah, I'm going to do my own thing. And you go like, I don't know if that's going to work. But then Shamik delivered it and you felt it. One of the last things I want to talk about too is like
0: Donald Glover and and the the live action component in animation, because I don't know that people quite understand how complex that is to actually, Yeah. Yeah, we haven't seen that in a while
3: yeah yeah i mean that that came together very last minute it was a real leap of faith you know it was kind of one of those things where we were we were doing test screenings and we had like a cardboard cutout of donald glover's face um kind of like south park with the flappy lips (laughs) and it wasn't his voice and it was like are we going to be able to actually get donald glover to to do To do this yeah um and And it came together, I can't can't remember off the top of my head, but I believe it was something like a month before the movie came out. Very quickly set up, uh, Donald was in New York. Um, Chris Miller flew out to New York, and me and Phil Lord were actually sitting on video here, kind of giving direction while Chris was in person in the studio in New York.
1: And we had
3: a costume designer very quickly build this Prowler costume um and you know donald was like sitting cross-legged and honestly we were just throwing him lines you know what i mean we were just like it was like hey um you know it's rude to stare we were just like what else we were kind of it was almost like a comedy um like ad-lib session yeah you know what i mean and we shot it from a few different angles um and we just tried a few of them (laughs) oh it made it it made it work so i mean it's uh but that's the process man that's the process it's um it's exhilarating it's um it's exciting it's terrifying at times because there was no like backup I mean we knew we wanted to do something with live action and I think that you know you hear the buzz of all the things that people may or may not be expecting and it's like you don't want to just give people what they expect let's surprise people let's maybe try to delight them um in in a different way Um, and, and I just thought it was, yeah, I just, I, I love that, that little moment, you know,
0: I mean, surprising us. You did the ending surprised us. We were like, wait, and it's interesting. You almost lose track of time. you're like, Oh, I could have, I could have kept going with this for a little while.
3: Yeah. People say that people say, (laughs) Oh, I could have kept going. I'm like, that was two hours and 20 minutes. (laughs) We gave, we cut you a break when we did. And I mean, look, I, I, you know, I, I love our our cliffhanger ending because part of the reason why it was such like a whoa moment is because we introduced a new wrinkle at the last minute. Yes, and and I think that you know I, I, that was a very conscious decision. It's kind of like okay, now that Miles knows the truth, he knows exactly what he needs to do. Yeah, or does he? And that was the way that we decided to tackle the cliff end, clip the cliffhanger. It was like he, you and I know exactly what we need to do now. Wait wait a minute, you mean because I'm Spider-Man, this kid's not? And it's like, bam, new wrinkle at the last minute. And I I, I loved it. What you
0: and the team and everyone there has done, because you said it's, it's, animation is a collective process. It really process is. The process is so incredible. The world, the five worlds in one that you all yeah. created. <laughs> and just honestly want to tell you just like what you mean to the animation space and just like, your voice is vital and it's important and I oh, hope that you, know you that. And I'm excited to see this uh, this film continue out throughout the award season.
3: Oh thank you very much, yeah, man. 100%. That means a lot coming from you Sean. Yeah, hundred percent. All right, right. Thank on. you for joining us. Oh my pleasure. When we come back, Yvonne's gonna be
0: speaking with Jeffrey Wright from American Fiction.
4: Jeffrey, thanks so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you
5: for inviting me.
4: American Fiction had its premiere at the Toronto Film Festival, where it won the People's Choice Award, which is, you know, the most desired award you could get so early in the season. And recently, you got five Independent Spirit Award nominations, not a small feat. And also, you were named as part of AFI's Top 10 Films which is also quite the feat. I imagine none of that was on your mind when you were making it. So what were your expectations at the time?
5: Yeah, certainly none of that was on my mind. I don't think that considerations like that really have a place uh, when working. If any strangeness kind of drifts into my head, I I try to delete it uh-huh. <laughs> to, to focus on the on you know the work at hand, um, but our 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 sense was when we were working on the film that we were we were enjoying the work, uh, we were enjoying working together, and uh, it seemed that we might be doing something um, something good. Uh, you know, we certainly thought <laughs> thought um, it it felt right, and I guess for me the first gauge is the response to the crew the crew is, is in some ways the first audience. And there was just a gathering momentum as we worked and you could feel people just taking a little extra pride in their work. I mean, crews are the hardest working people in, uh, across any industry. Um, and they, you know, work often, uh, thanklessly, you know, film crews. Yeah. And, uh, at the same time, uh, they sense when something is going well and you can feel that energy, uh, grow as you go on and you can sense that the quiet, when the camera's rolling, gets a little bit quieter. And, <laughs> and they also, and there was also just a sense of, of, of joy that, uh, that kind of, you know, over, overtook the process. We only shot for 25 or 26 days. Uh, it was quick, it was efficient, but, um, but yeah, we had a sense that, uh, that um, we were making a story that maybe people wanted to hear.
4: Well, I know Core Jefferson, the writer and director of the film, wrote Monk with you in mind. Is it a strange feeling to have someone say they've written something for you?
5: If it's not a very interesting or good piece, it could be strange, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it, that wasn't the case here. There was a, you know, uh, you know, he had, he, he wrote me a letter. He sent me the, the email and he wrote a letter saying that he, you know, had my voice in his head early on in the process of, of even uh, reading the the novel and, and then when when adapting it. And he also said, and I have no plan B. Oh <laughs> so, my God, no pressure. So that was, pretty, the, yeah, in terms of an alternative uh, actor. So that was pretty compelling. And then I read it and really from the first scene I was drawn in I loved that conversation around uh, race and, and the context of race language, and it's a conversation that I think we've been having in you know in in our culture recently. It's a conversation I've had with myself and with others, and it was just smartly done. I think one of the one of the problems that we face today is that you know there's so much conversation around race. Race is always informing us. You know it has from the beginnings of our country, but we kind of lack a fluency, so it becomes uh, an obstacle to real progress. And this was sharply drawn. I thought it was uh, would be interesting to play, and so when I read that, I was in. But then further to that, I don't know if Cord he certainly didn't know at the time, but. There were other elements of Monk's journey that were really striking to me because I experienced them myself. My mom passed about a year before I got that script. I was, I had the good fortune of being raised by two women, my mother and my aunt, her eldest sister, who is now 94 years old. And she came to live with me after my mom passed, she came to New York from DC. And so I became not only with my mother uh, to an extent, my mother passed very, uh, relatively quickly, but, uh, I became caretaker to these two women who had been caretaker to me. And so that point in Monk's life really, you know, kind of echoed my own. And I felt a really close, uh, just emotional tie to it. And an understanding of the pressures that come with that and the sacrifices that that asks of a person, whether, you know, it be personal, creative, professional, whatever. And, uh, yeah that 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 struck me I also um got the sense that a lot of people people would re- be able to relate to that that it had a universal quality to it that um that uh that would lend a lot of interesting space within our film for people to uh to join us
4: I have to know I know Cord has mentioned that the original title for the film was going to be did yes. you get it in that form when it had that title? I did. What was that like for you to sort of see that? And did it give you pause or were you like, oh, this is interesting?
5: No, it didn't give me pause. I mean, it made sense. Once you read the script uh-huh. and you know, see the film, you understand why. And I, you know, I was hoping we could get away with it. But uh, but yeah, uh, uh, Cord tells a funny story that there's someone on the marketing side of things who said, well, uh, you know, Google the movie and see what comes up. You your movie will never be found on the interwebs. So I think he put that idea uh, rightly out of his head. But uh, yeah, that was what was on the slate.
4: Well, Cord obviously has worked in TV for a long time. And before that, he was a journalist. But this was his first time directing a feature film. And I'm curious for you, like, what was it like to watch him sort of find his way over the course of making this film?
5: it was wonderful as i said there was a gathering momentum from the first day to the last cord obviously had to learn where the where the levers are and the buttons are that make a film set work but uh, and also again he he's a he's a fine uh communicator smart guy you know he's one of the sharper knives in the drawer so he was able to galvanize all of us. I mean, directing at the end of the day is about communicating through the, you know, the, the camera aperture onto the screen, but it's also, um, about communicating on set, not just to the actors, but to everyone involved. And he, you know, he, he showed wonderful leadership. Again, that's also what directing is about. It's just leading the thing and, and we all kind of gathered around and, you know, we, we played pulling guard when we had to. And we recognized, too, that, you know, this was his, you know, his first, uh, swing at, uh, at, at directing. And what he did as well, to his credit, was he acknowledged what he did not know, Ooh. which, you know, that's super important. He, ca- you know, came without ego and, and, and understanding that, you know, the nature of this work is collaborative and, and, uh. You know, we, I think we protected one another and, and at the end of the day, we, we worked in a pretty efficient, uh, way over the course of those 25, 26 days, I forget exactly how many, and, and, and much of that had to do with wanting to, um, support cord.
4: What was the conversation like when you were having to embody the, the alter ego, uh, of, of your character, of leaning into that stereotype when there's the, the conference call. Is this based on your actual life?
5: Yeah, you think some college boy can come up with that
4: No, 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 I don't. What were the conversations like between you and Cord about going there, and how did that feel for you to sort of lean into that?
5: There, there wasn't a lot of, like, you know, kind of conversation necessary. Mm-hmm. John Ortiz, who plays Arthur uh, Monk's literary agent is an actor that I've never worked with before, but I've known for over 20 years from New York. In fact, we've done plays at the same time at the public theater where we shared a green room space, uh, even though we were on separate stages, I've, I've known and, 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 and admired John for uh, some time. And so I couldn't wait to work with him. He showed up, (laughs) <laughs> I think one morning, the morning that we were to or maybe the night before he showed up on, on on set the next morning we rehearsed a bit uh, uh on the set uh we bounced some ideas around the three of us and then we were, we turned the cameras on <laughs> and uh and again the tone was so clear um and and Cord would come in and you know make adjustments here and there, but kind of the larger questions, the larger questions had been answered, you know, in in, in by the script. And uh, I just had a ball playing with 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 Ortiz. I had a sense of how he would go about working, and you know, my expectations were matched and exceeded. And we we just had we just went after it and, and had had good fun together.
4: At a screening that I was at, this, there's a scene that got um, uh, uh, I don't know a lively reaction. I would say, and it's a scene where it's it's Monk um, speaking with Issa Ray's character, Sintera Gold, and you know she has written this novel that Monk sort of dismisses as work that sort of plays on black stereotypes, and they're having a debate about who gets to define blackness and the limited perspective that is allowed for what black life looks like. What's your point of view of the argument they're having? Like if Jeffrey Wright were in the room with them, what would he say?
5: What I love about that scene, and I do think that that scene is a thesis argument. Yes. For the film, at least as regards the, uh, the absurdist side of Monk's life, the side that is, wrestling with perceptions of race and identity and all of that. Um, And what I love about it is that Monk is confronted and Issa brings such credibility to that character and to the argument simply by who she is, it's just, again, fantastic casting. Uh, And at the end, what I appreciate is the ambiguity We're not sure. Well, who is exactly on the right side? Is there a right side, and is there maybe a synthesis of those two competing arguments that actually approaches something more, uh, more insightful? I, I don't philosophically align entirely with you know with monk. I feel like uh, exact alignment with him in terms of this personal journey relative to personal responsibility, responsibility to family. I feel aligned with him in terms of experiencing the pressures from the outside that misperceive his interior life and his, you know, what he considers to be his authentic self. I get that, but I don't necessarily feel uh, you know uh, that you know i you know he's flawed like anyone else i you know so i don't necessarily feel that he is the arbiter of truth in this in this story and yeah, neither necessarily is she so i i you know i may be i may be somewhere in this you know the evolved synthesized uh middle of uh, of of all of it uh, you know uh, but at the same time, I don't know if I necessarily have the answers either. But um, but uh, but I love that conversation because I think it asks us to ask maybe some more constructive and better questions about the issues it uh, it centers on. The criticisms that Monk has are criticisms that uh, that exist across the political spectrum. I think in terms of examining why we are so bad at understanding race and problem solving around race whether it be media whether it be through policy um so i i i i take on board you know some of his observations um but at the same time i'm sensitive to in a way that perhaps he is not that there is a need not for an exclusion of certain stories, but for the expansion and inclusion of more stories that reflect the uh, the complexity and the heterogeneity of of black what of quote unquote black life in America, and that the narrowing of that perception of what it means to be black is one that exists you know in many pockets of this uh you know of our society I walk through the airport every day and I sense it I walk you know through my neighborhood which is a you know pretty you know you know left leaning neighborhood I sense it from certain people this kind of you know perception that I am you know stagger lee I get it you know <laughs> if I go down into you know, go down south to see my family down there and walk in, you know, certain towns and get it everywhere. So um, I'm not necessarily implying that there is a direct middle there. I'm not sure where the synthesis lies between their two arguments. And maybe there are other, you know, other perspectives that need to be included too to really synthesize something that is, you know, is the most uh, insightful.
4: Well, something I heard coming out of my screening was Wow. Jeffrey is really funny. You know, you're mostly known for your dramatic roles. Obviously, you've done comedy before, but your comedic abilities really shine in this film, even in the somberest moments. Like I'm thinking about that beachside scene. I I won't give it away what's happening there, but let's just say there's a mention of Idris Elba there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) What did you enjoy about, you know, leaning more into the comedic sensibility of this film? And how did it align with what you're comfortable with doing
5: oh yeah I, I love doing comedy. I mean, I've always done comedy, whether it's on the stage I mean Angels of America, like you know is 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 you know comedic through and through mm-hmm. and in and and, and and like this film, it's you know you have to have that levity in order to to take in the you know the the more bitter medicine yes. and it's um. I think this film is funny. I don't think it's a comedy. No. It's satirical. And I think in some ways the satire is tragedy in disguise. <laughs> um, but I yeah, I I love doing comedy. i yeah, broken flowers, you know, this you know, there's a lot of you know the humor in that. Um, Wes Anderson stuff. I yes. just love his comedic tone, the irony. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean I I this is a different type, and it kind of matches my sensibilities in some way. Uh, probably closer in in some ways to my own sense of humor. It turns, you know, he's pretty, you know, he, he can, uh, he knows how to how to how to wield the sarcasm, and uh, yeah, it just it, it, this was music that was very familiar to me.
4: Well, this year you also um, starred in Netflix's civil rights film Rustin in which you played Adam Clayton Powell Jr. who's a pastor and uh, the first African-American to represent New York in Congress. Tell me what your process is like preparing for a character like Monk and how maybe it's different from how you prepare for playing a real life figure like Powell.
5: I was aware of him for like all my life because he was such a charismatic and dynamic figure in, 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 um, in in American politics and particularly in the, within the black community, you know, I'm here in Washington, DC now was where, which is where I grew up. You know, everybody's political here. Politics is just in the blood, you know, and, uh, and, and he was, a, you know, he was, he was a hero. He was beloved cause he was an influential man. Uh, he was politically effective, uh, but he was also, you know, he was also a showman. He was like part political shaman, part political showman. He was a character. Different, of course, than playing a fictional character, you feel this extra sense of responsibility to do justice to that person's memory. I'll tell you, <laughs> I, I, as I said, my mom passed a few years ago. I was doing some stuff uh, at her house, trying to get some affairs together and things with the help of a cousin of mine and he had pulled all of this my mom's stuff, or a bunch of it, from the basement and put it in the living room. We were doing some work down in the basement. My mom had wonderful book collection and 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 record collection. Some fantastic old vinyl. Some of the my favorite records that I have are those that I kind of permanently borrowed from my mom's collection, like Miles Davis Live Evil, which is like uh, if you haven't heard it, a, uh, Unreal album. But I got it from my mom. And anyway, I was trying to figure out uh, in my schedule, how to do, um, the film Rustin and George Wolf, of course, we've worked together so many times before, and I I love him to death, but I was doing Westworld. I had gone off to do asteroid city. So I was trying to figure out because in between, you know, they gave me a few weeks off and I was trying to figure out if I was going to be able to do Rustin. And I walked into my mom's house, seeing all this stuff in the living room. The first thing that caught my eye as I walked in was Adam Clayton Powell's face staring at me uh, from the cover of an album that was a collection of some of his speeches, an album called Keep the Faith, Baby. And I called George. I said, George, you're never going to believe what happened. I just walked, walked in my mom's house, and Adam Clayton Powell is staring at me. He said, yeah, Jeffrey, that's your mother telling you to do my movie. <laughs> so, so, so I said, OK, I guess I'm in. Um, um, you know, things come to you in different ways.
4: I want to talk more about that dynamic between you and George. As you said, you've worked together a lot over the years, Angels in America. He directed you and other Broadway productions like Top Dog, Underdog, Free Man of Color. Talk to me about maintaining that working relationship across decades and how it's grown over the years.
5: The reason that we work so much together after... The first experience we had with Angels in America on Broadway, which began, you know, that was a tough one. That was a big operation, a big story. It was my first, uh, you know, kind of production on that scale. And it was also a role that. wasn't the easiest for me to find or to reveal there was a kind of vulnerability a sexuality about it that you know uh was took work you know i was a jock growing up uh you know i i spent more time in in locker rooms than i did in green rooms or dressing rooms and so i wasn't necessarily the most evolved uh, you know person in the room as regards sexuality and and you know although i was kind of conscious of you know the fluidity of of sexuality and my own and all of that but still it it to kind of play that character on a stage and you know kind of you know reveal that's you know that side of myself wasn't necessarily the easiest thing the reason i say that is it o- over the process of working on that george and i created an incredible amount of uh, uh, um, of trust uh, uh, for one another, or we you know that trust was born out of that process, and over time that trust has only grown. And so I love George to death. He's uh, you know he's also godfather to my kids. He's got a comprehensive kind of encyclopedic um, uh, knowledge of American history through a black lens, and he's at the same time brings such you know wide vibrant imagination to interpreting those things. And he is also as a director, so uh, demanding, but in the best way, and so supportive in terms of detail and uh, and 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 insight that he gives you. I, I just, you know, he's he's top shelf.
4: Another person I'm curious about who you've collaborated with multiple times is Wes Anderson. Did the French Mm -hmm. Dispatch, Asteroid City. What is your best Wes Anderson story, Jeffrey?
5: Wes is very similar to George. Really? In terms of his, his attention to detail. And he as well is an absolute, you know, dogged taskmaster. He, you know, he wants your everything. But he is also so gentle and generous in pulling it out of you and the two of them are very similar in that way and in fact Wes said that he had seen like pretty much most of my work in the theater and most of that has been with George and I was like really you saw Free Man of Color wow really and so when he came to me with the script for French Dispatch he said I've seen everything you've done in the theater I I think I don't think that I think I wrote this for you because I don't think there's anyone else who could play this role. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but it was certainly flattering. And uh, and our working our relationship is um, you know began there. I get him. I get his language. I get his tone. I love playing his language. Wes doesn't place a comma, you know, a, you know, in, you know, by accident. It's There's so much information to get from the way he, uh, he crafts a sentence. And I love that stuff. Funny story or interesting story about working with him. Well, I'll tell you this about him. This is what I, 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 I've, I've come to realize about him. Adrian Brody's character in Asteroid City, the director, seems to become himself or find himself more so on the set than he does anywhere else. I think there's something autobiographical about that with Wes because Wes can be somewhat reserved, somewhat cautious, slightly socially hesitant at times. He gets on set. He's still sensitive, but there's a clarity and a purpose about him. There's a transformation between the two that is just so remarkable. He becomes this he he takes on this sense of this kind of general like quality, uh, in his own way, that's just so wonderful. And he beca- he becomes fully alive. It's so cool, it's so cool, and and you almost get the sense he doesn't want to leave. But then we go back to dinner and, and it's fine. And you know we have you know we eat together and we have some nice wine. And he's uh, you know he's his other self and he's comfortable in that space too. Um, but uh, it's so interesting, this transformation that overcomes him when he is doing the thing that he loves and wants to do. Um, yeah, he he as well. Ab- I absolutely adore working with him.
4: We've been talking about uh, your work on stage. It's where you got your start, but it's been a while since you've been in a production. Have you been itching to get back on stage? I've been too
5: busy. I've kept myself busy enough that um, I, I don't, Really have time to go? Wow, I would really like to be doing this now, and th- thankfully I've been working on projects that I've, I've been into and working with collaborator collaborators that I really appreciate. That said, uh, you know I'd like to get back to the stage at some point. I want to get myself back to fighting condition because it it uh, you know it demands you know more in some ways of the of the body, uh, and I want to get myself back to. A place where I can get back in the ring. Also, my kids are now uh, away in school, and so I have a greater flexibility to invest the the you know the time that it takes to to do a show, particularly if it's on Broadway, because it's uh, you know I did Angels for a year and a half, and you know it's tougher to do that when you when you have when you have kids. Well, before
4: I let you go, is there anything you can tell us about the Batman Two? Are you close? Have you got a script?
5: Yeah, there's there's pretty much absolutely nothing that I can tell you. No, I have not got a script. I think Matt is still busy chiseling away. Uh I'm I'm excited to read uh what's there when you know when the time comes. But uh uh yeah, that um uh it'll it'll be fun to get back to Gotham, but uh that's that's down the road just yet.
4: Well, Jeffrey, thanks so much for taking the time. It was such a pleasure speaking with you.
2: All right. Thank you. Take care. Thanks to everyone for listening and watching. We'll be back with a new episode on December 21st with more interviews and conversation.
0: The Envelope is brought to you by HBO Originals Going to Mars, the Nikki Giovanni project for your consideration.